Well, I know that many of us have had uh, gatherings in our homes, uh, and we have uh, been with family members, and uh, I know that it is a busy, uh, busy day, usually. We come to the end of this day, and uh, I invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles to First Kings chapter 16, and we're going to begin reading at verse 29. The topic that we're going to be looking at tonight is one that is in many ways the mirror opposite of the consideration that we usually are focused on on, uh, on uh, Resurrection Sunday. Uh, Resurrection Sunday being the celebration of the victory of Christ uh, over the forces of evil and over the sin, over sin and hell. A welcome, happy morning. Uh, age to age shall say, hell today is vanquished, heaven is won today. Well, uh, we are going to be reading a passage from uh, an account, one of the dark days, uh, one of the dark periods in the, in the kingdom of the, the northern kingdom of Israel. And so um, I, I debated on how to uh, title this sermon, something along the lines of... Uh, how the children of God can live in evil days. How the children of God can live in evil days or just evil days. Um, and so uh, we're going to look and see uh, something about this in uh, 1 Kings chapter 16, beginning at verse 29, and reading through verse 17, verse 7. Now... Um, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as, it has been, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, uh, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abarim, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segu, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Joshua the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith which is east of the Jordan, and you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went, and he did according to the word of the Lord. 
he went and lived in the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens uh, brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. After a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Signs the reading of God's word. Uh, Let's bow in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage that is before us tonight, uh, grant that we might have understanding and wisdom and that you would grant to us the ability to rightly apply these things, to see and to know and to lay hold of that which you have spoken to us in your word. We ask all this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, the, uh, the people of God must live by faith in God's word through times of unprecedented evil. That's that's you wanted to encapsulate what we want to see tonight. People of God must live by faith in God's word through times of unprecedented evil. And I want to divide up uh, my uh, our, our, our tonight's sermon in three headings. First, Israel's descent into the abyss of great evil. Israel's descent into the abyss of great evil. Second, the great cost of doing evil. And thirdly, God's children must live by faith in God's word in evil days. First, we see something about, in this text, of of, uh, the emphasis that is here on Ahab's uniqueness, something that makes him different. And see, we, we see in Ahab's reign uh, a descent uh, uh, into uh, things that Israel, idolatrous as Israel was, uh, had not done prior to Ahab. And uh, Ahab introduces new uh, evil into uh, the uh, into the account of the writer that the fir- writer of First Kings gives us, just the number of chapters that are devoted to him indicates that he is different. Um, remember the previous kings that we have looked at after Jeroboam, the first king of the northern. And, and by the time we get through here, you guys should have all the kings memorized, right? Um, of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But um, it helps to rehearse them. Uh, after Jeroboam, who was the first king in the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, came Nadab, his son, who reigned for mere two years. And then we have Basha. Now, Basha lived a, uh, had a longer reign of 24 years. Uh, after Basha, his son Elah. Elah reigned two years. And then after Elah, we have uh, Zimri, remember, is the one that conspired against Elah. Zimri, how long did he last? Anybody remember? Seven days. Yeah, seven days. And uh, so uh, the, nor- the northern kingdom is, is, uh, has had a real period of instability and turmoil and uprisings, civil, even civil war. Uh, uh, and then, uh, so, so we have Zimri, and then after Zimri, Omri. 
Uh, Omri is the one that uh, won uh, sort of a civil war that took place there. And then uh, the son of Omri is Ahab. So we come to Ahab. And Ahab um, is like his father. Omri did evil uh, before the Lord. But uh, so Ahab, you notice that uh, each of the northern kings is sort of anchored to the king of in the southern kingdom of Judah. And so during the reign of the, of the king of the southern kingdom, Asa, by name, we had all of these kings that we've just mentioned uh, have gone by in the northern kingdom. And so uh, uh, Ahab is the last of the uh, uh, kings that reign during the reign of Asa, king in Judah. And so um, Ahab then, uh, from the standpoint of the writer of kings, is the worst of all of the kings that have gone before him. And uh, we see that it's mentioned twice. Notice in verse 30, uh, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who went before him. And then notice as well in verse 33, um, we, where we read, uh, And Ahab made an Asher, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings who were before him. Do you kind of get an idea that the writer of Kings wants you to see Ahab as an evil king. He is an evil king. He has done more evil than all who have gone before him. So how did he, how did he do that? Well, uh, the first thing we see is that the text tells us that he um, married uh, for his wife. He took for his wife, verse uh, 31, Notice the language in verse 31, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, the king of the Sidonians. And so that's the first thing. He took a wife from, uh, who was the daughter of Ethbel, who was, it is thought, a king, he was a king in Sidonia, so in the northern region, uh, north of Israel. And uh, she is uh, his daughter, and she is a worshiper of Baal. And so Ahab, we're told, uh, after he marries someone outside of Israel, he not only marries someone outside the covenant, which is against God's law, but um, he goes on and he worships her God. He worships Baal. And uh, this, is, this has been unknown. You see, for Jeroboam, and, uh, the idolatry that he practiced was an idolatry in which he erected golden calves that were, as it were, his uh, alternative to the uh, worship that was taking place in the southern kingdom of Judah at Jerusalem and the temple. And his golden calves were to be representative of uh, Yahweh and an alternative way of worshiping Yahweh. But what is Ahab doing? Ahab is going beyond that. 
And that's why the writer says, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Never before had a king of Israel worshipped at an altar of an idol in this way. And so it is a blatant, it is a blatant and evil day. It is worshipping of an idol. Now what is, who is Baal? The word Baal means Lord. He was considered in ancient times to be the Lord of the heavens. Um, One ancient writer put it this way. He said, and I quote, The children of the first generation of mankind in time of drought stretched forth their hands to heaven toward the sun, for they regarded him, that is Baal, as the sole Lord of heaven. And Baal worship became uh, the, the go-to idolatry in Canaan. And it, it was the idolatry that Israel had practiced also during the time of the judges. And so what we might, what, he, what Jeroboam probably thought was being, he was being inclusive. He was, he was extending the reach of the nation and including other gods, and maybe trying even politically to unite uh, the Sidonian nation with Israel under, under a common uh, worship of Baal. He was actually taking them backwards because Baal worship was, a, was uh, practiced by uh, the people of Canaan before Israel, and it was practiced by uh, the people during the period of the judges, the people of Israel during the period of the judges. In the reign of Ahab, Baal was served in Israel by 450 priests. Think of it. 450 priests to an idol, Baal, as well as prophets. And his worshipers wore special vestments when his ritual was performed. And the ordinary offering made to the god consisted of incense and burnt sacrifices and on special extraordinary occasions of human sacrifice was offered to Baal. So Baal is uh, an idol, an evil idol, and Ahab is leading Israel into uh, what he thinks is something that is very progressive, that he's actually doing something very, very wicked and very evil. The text tells us that he actually had a house built for Baal, a temple for Baal, and an altar. And this is an attempt by Ahab probably to fuse the worship of Baal with the worship of Yahweh. This is an evil thing, an awful thing. So, and then we see then uh, the text mentions not only the fact that Ahab led uh, Israel into Baal worship, but the next thing that we notice is that in verses 34 and 35, we read of uh, that in, it was in Ahab's days that uh, an event took place that is also a very wicked, wicked uh, event. In the days of Ahab, 
we're told in his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Zegu, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. And so the ruins of Jericho had been, had been had laid dormant up until this time. We're told that Hael laid the foundation at the cost of two of his sons, his firstborn, his eldest, and his youngest son. Consider it. Think about it. He did this at great cost, his two sons. Why would the author of Kings mention this? Uh, Jericho, you remember, uh, was, first of all, it was, it's considered to be the oldest city, that has, uh, the city on earth, uh, the oldest city. It is the lowest city on the surface of the planet. Um, this, I guess, sort of a trivia thing, but 750 feet, uh, uh, 229 miles below sea level. But you remember that Jericho was the first city west of the Jordan River that was captured by the Israelites under the command of Joshua. And uh, the account of that is a stirring account in Joshua chapter 6. And I'd like for us, if you would, just uh, maybe it might be good for us to turn to Joshua chapter 6. In Joshua chapter 6, if we kind of um, try to uh, jump into the, the middle of the chapter, um, you remember the, the account in, in verse 20, so the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her, as you, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, and her father and mother and brothers and all who belong to her. What a wonderful thing. Uh, here we have Rahab and all of her family being uh, brought out. All, it says all of her relatives. And they were put outside the camp of the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she, was, she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. This uh, woman believed the word of God, and she was a believer in the God of Israel, though she was a harlot. And here is a beautiful picture of the way that she, not only she alone, but she and all who belonged to her, 
all who were members of her family were brought out. But then we're told in verse 26, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city. At the cost of his firstborn shall the city shall shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall uh, he set up its gates. And so the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the land. So what we're reading here in First Kings chapter sixteen, verse thirty-four, about Hail. Hail is a man under a curse, and he has rebuilt this city at the cost of his firstborn and the cost of the death of his youngest son. No doubt they were sacrificed um, as a, a part of the building of this city. But notice the phrase, and this brings us uh, to, well, uh, I, I don't want to go there yet to my last point, but I want us to notice uh, that uh, the mention here, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But first, I want us to pause and just think about the cost of wickedness, the cost of doing evil. The cost of doing evil is first individual, in that it is something that uh, costs a person a great deal in terms of his own heart and conscience. If you consciously, knowingly, wickedly, progressively, and over a long time, in spite of having heard and knowing the word of God, there is a great cost. Israel knew of the curse that Joshua put on, jo- on, Jared, uh, on the, anyone who rebuilt it. And so what's being announced here is that here we have men who are hardened in their opposition to God and his word. That is a hard heart. Willing to sacrifice your own child to reduce, two of your own children, to do this. It is a conscience that is seared and damaged. And this man is just in that condition. There is a hardening of the conscience, hardening of the heart that leads itself, leads a person to not care, though God has announced a curse upon anyone who does this. And that leads me to uh, a consideration of another passage from the New Testament, Revelation chapter 16, which we've been looking at, which Pastor Rob has been preaching from. But in Revelation 16, we find some interesting things. In verses, in verses 9 and following, we read about these, uh, uh, the, the, the angels pouring out the bowls. And after they pour out the bowls, in verse 9 of chapter 16 of Revelation, they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they did what? Repented? No, it says, they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent or give him glory. One of the the remarkable things 
men are hardened against God to the point where though they suffer greatly as a result of what they do, they refuse to repent. And they curse the God who has afflicted them. And, and that theme in Revelation chapter 16 is repeated. If you go down a couple of verses, you read, people nod their tongues in anguish. People nod their tongues in anguish. And did they repent? No. They cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their source. So here is this man, Hayil. He's rebuilt this city, and he's done it at a great human cost. And it reminds us that whenever men act wickedly, it is always, always accompanied by great human cost. Think of him, uh, this man, Ha'il, and uh, his own uh, loss of his own sons. But in the pursuit of our false gods of money, promotion, success, how many families have been destroyed? How many marriages have fallen apart? How many relationships have died? And does it occur to anyone to repent? That the problem might lie with me? That the problem might be that I'm looking at this all wrong and that all of my responses are working in a way that is detrimental to my life and is bringing pain and suffering on me. And it never occurs to question. It never occurs to ask and to point the mirror, have the mirror pointing it back in the direction to look at ourselves. And that's what we see is a part of the hardening process of the descent into evil. There is a hardening that not only is individual and in its effects, but societal. Look at what we see in our own society around us. Who would have thought that in the time that some of us in this room, and certainly I include myself in this category, grew up at the time of the 1960s and the sexual revolution, who would have thought that we have come to where we are today? Men and women have gone so far as to think now that gender is uh, a matter of, of uh, societal uh, choice, of denying one's own gender and having uh, surgery to change one's gender, and some uh, when they're very young. Now think of the damage that that does. How, 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 the effects of that medically and you know, in, in every way for the rest of a person's life. And yet, does it ever occur to someone that, that, to say that this might not be a good idea? It is a hardening in sin. Abortion. You know, we, you know a, a, a baby in the womb can't be uh, looked at. And yet we murder countless millions of babies. And we think, well, it's all hidden. No one sees it. It has no effect. It has a huge effect. It has a huge effect. 
on our view of human life and in our willingness to believe lies. I'll think of the lies, all of the slogans, all of the things that we're told about abortion through the years, since 1973, when the Supreme Court uh, ruled that it was legal. So to be wicked is to involve oneself in great pain, and yet in the process of that, to refuse ever to question whether my actions and my attitudes are right before a holy God. Each one of us on an individual basis has to face that. How many of us have beat our heads against the wall again and again and again in personal situations that we face? And we need to stop and we need to ask ourselves, am I looking at this the right way? Am I thinking the right way? And so to be wicked then is to be hardened in direct contempt of the word of God and a defiance of all that God's word says. And so that we come thirdly to this question, how do we live then? We must live as those who have confidence in the word of God and believe the word of God when days are evil. And uh, I want us to know, first of all, that even in, um, we we begin the the doctrine of the word of God, so to speak, in the last verse of chapter 16. Because everything that has happened with Jericho and the builder of Jericho has happened, and the writer is really putting his finger on it. He wants you to see it, that here, all that has happened to Ha'il is according to the word of God that God spoke to, uh, to Joshua, through Joshua in pronouncing a curse on anyone who would do this. And so that was God's word a long time ago. For Israel. And here it has come to pass now. In Ahab's reign, it has come to pass. And the author is saying, God's word is ruling history. God's word is the thing that we must look at. And so uh, then we turn to the beginning of chapter 17. And um, I'm not going to try to tonight in the time that we have um, go through everything in the the verses that we read from chapter 17. But I guess what I'd like for us to see is something of the doctrine of the word of God. What we just saw is that God's word has come true. Uh, We have an example of God's word being fulfilled in the curse on Ha'il. But now notice that out of nowhere, it seems, uh, Elijah, the Tishbite, comes uh, to Ahab with a word from the Lord. And uh, I like what um, Ralph Davis says in his commentary. He says, and he always does this sort of thing with humor. He says, uh, we need, uh, we should deny that yawning gulf of several blank centimeters between between chapters, and we should run into 17 verse 1, because 17 verse 1 belongs with 16, 29 and following. <laughs> why? Why does, he, why does he say to d- ignore that chapter break and think of it as attached to it? 
he wants us to see, he's, he's drawing attention to the fact that here is, here is the important point for the reader. We're introduced to a man named Elijah. And he, he comes from nowhere. But who, what does he do? He brings the word of God to bear. His name means, Elijah's name means, God is Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. My God is actually Yah, or that's a shortened form. My God is Yahweh. And we know that he uh, is from Tishbe in Gilead, that is uh, uh, east of the Jordan, so he's not from uh, the area. And he appears, and he speaks to Ahab. And the first thing he does is he gives us something. He gives us the knowledge of, of God. First, he is the Lord. Notice the language. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain three years except by my word. He know, he, we learn something about God. God is the, the Lord. He is uh, Yahweh, the God of uh, the God who is self-existent. He is the I Am, and He is the Creator God. But He is Yahweh communicates that He is the Covenant Lord of Israel. That is the covenant name that God gave to Himself when He revealed Himself to Moses at the burning bush. So not only is he the great I am, but he is the God of Israel. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God who has made promises to Israel and fulfilled them. Promises both of cursing and of blessing. And he is, we learn here, the living God. He's not lifeless like Baal. He's not an, a, a, a construct of the human mind. He's not something that has been... Uh, made up by men to worship, but he is the living God. He is not lifeless, but he is the living God. He has life in himself. He is the author and the giver of life. But, but Elijah also tells us something of his office. He says, it is before Yahweh that I stand. He says, before whom I stand. He's standing in front of Ahab, when he's delivering this message, but he says, it is before Yahweh that I stand. And I wish that that idea would so penetrate each and every one of us that we would see ourselves as always standing in the presence of God. That we always live and we always move before him. That's what he's saying. There's a sense in which he means this in a in, in, in a sense that is uh, telling us something of his prophetic office, because as a prophet, he is telling us that what he has to say originates in the counsels of God. Because a prophet is someone who receives the word of God directly from the mouth of God in the heavenly council. And uh, that's, that is something that is true of every true prophet. He has stood in the counsel of the Lord. He has heard the word of the Lord, and he faithfully proclaims that word to those to whom he is sent. A 
false prophet, by contrast, is someone who follows his own heart, as Jeremiah, Jeremiah describes the false prophets of his day. They say continually to those who despise the word of God, it will be well with you. It will be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster will ever fall on you. All is well. That's what Jeremiah says a false prophet does, but a true prophet is one who has stood in the counsel of God, who has stood in the heavenly council, heard the word of the Lord, and then delivered that word faithfully to the hearer. So that is, that is the two... Uh, when, when, when Elijah says, before whom I stand... On the one hand, he's standing in front of Ahab, and he's saying, Ahab, you know, as great a king as you think you are, I'm not standing in front of you, and it's not to you that I answer. Oh, that we would not fear men. Oh, that we would have a proper, have that kind of perspective when we are with other people, that we would recognize that the God before whom we and is the great I am. He is the all-sufficient one. He is the one who controls uh, all of history and controls our lives, and he is far greater than anyone that we may be having to speak to. And uh, that should give us a sense of boldness, and that's the characteristic that you see in Elijah. He has boldness to speak and what, for most people, would be a very fearful situation. He probably would fear for his life to say the things that he is about to announce. And so he, but he's not afraid. He's bold, and that's the thing. We want to be, we want to have that kind of boldness. Why? Because we stand in the presence of Almighty God, and we live and breathe, and we move in his presence. And so... Uh, he announces then, finally, this judgment. There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Okay, so we've learned that the word that God said about Jericho that was spoken so long ago was fulfilled. At great cost, at great cost, Aiel built, rebuilt Jericho in defiance of God's word. And yet God's word was fulfilled upon him. Here, what, what, what the, the message that is implied when Elijah says, there will be no rain, there, it, there will be no dew or rain these years except by my word, that is, that is the word of the Lord, then that word also is true and you can count on it just as assuredly so Elijah comes and he pronounces that word. And it is a covenant curse because the hardening of the heavens was announced by Moses as being that which would take place if Israel worshipped other gods. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, we read these words. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, 
and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So that curse of the covenant, Elijah announces. So how should we live in evil days? We need to raise our own thoughts to the heavenly council where the word of God originates. And um, I'm reminded of, of just the things that we've been meditating on and thinking about as we've looked at the book of Revelation together. Isn't it the case that what, ha- what, what the book of Revelation is uh, sort of unveiling before our eyes is this, this high throne and heavenly council of God ruling in the midst of chaos and evil of this world and Christians who are suffering persecution because of their faith. And yet God reigns. God is in the heavens and his word is fulfilled. That's the first thing. We need to realize that God's word originates, uh, comes to us from heaven itself. It comes to us through the apostles and prophets, but it comes from God. And so that ought to lead us then to believe it, to believe God's word. Not only ought we to know and believe and trust it, but we ought also to love, to listen to the word of God. Particularly, that means on the day that we're considering today, that word that has announced the victory of Christ over evil. Evil does progress. It did in Ahab's day. It progressed. It got worse. Some of you might think, I I remember when I was young, uh, people that were older that I would listen to were always talking about how bad the world was. And it seemed like it couldn't get any get any worse. Well, here we are. Well, uh, not that long, not that long afterwards. But, but does, does isn't it true that in in these times uh, it seems as though evil does progress? And it, it, it's a, there's a movement. There's an intensifying, an opposition. There's a warfare almost against God and His throne see that warfare playing out on this front and that front and this front and that front. And yet we know that God's word rules over it all. So we need to have confidence in the word of God and in the gospel, which is the announcement of the coming of the Son of God who took our flesh, who died on the cross, for our sins. Believe that word. For my sins. He died. For my justification, he rose. This is true for me. The Bible says that the Lord will save all who trust in him. He will bring judgment upon all who defy his word. What a picture do you have in Jericho, right? They burned the city. It was cursed. They burned it to the ground. But not before they 
had taken Rahab out. All that belonged. That is a picture of what God is doing for his beloved children. He's the one who has said that we are the apple of his eye. He's the one who has promised to save and protect and keep. And so we need to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has won the victory over sin and death. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. May it be that as we live in a time where Hard not to be anxious, hard not to worry, hard not to see that open, almost warfare, militant warfare against God. May it be that we will raise our hearts to the heavenly throne and place our trust in that one, in that one who has given us his word to believe it and to know in believing it, that we will be saved. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, which reminds us that there is nothing new under the sun, that men's hearts are exceedingly wicked, exceedingly hardened against you and against your throne. They conspire together to overcome your kingdom. But we are reminded in Psalm 2 that you sit in the heavens and you laugh. We ask, O oh God, that you would grant to us such a love for your word and such a trust in it that even when things become difficult, we will not let go, but we will cleave to it and hold fast. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, turn in our hymnals to...